Well, good morning. It's a privilege to be with you uh, this morning. I think I know most of you here. Um, They told me I would have to introduce myself. I uh, was the pastor here for 23 years um, before retiring in uh, 2020. But it's good to be back with you. Um, And we pray for the men up at uh, Men's Retreat this morning at the Sindelar Cabin. I have to tell you that I was uh, watching uh, the service online a few weeks ago when uh, Eric Bryan was giving the plug for Men's Retreat. And um, um, something happened to my headphones. And so I was watching uh, the closed captioning at the bottom. And uh, he indicated that um, the men were going up to Cinderella's cabin uh, for men's retreat. And I thought, there's just something so wrong about that. Was the Sleeping Beauty Lodge not available? But we hope and pray that they're having a great time up there, and Pastor Matt is teaching them. And and, uh, I will just say um, it's a privilege to be here. I want to say that um, uh, when I retired uh, close to two years ago now, um, well, actually, when, when Pastor Matt came, the, the assumption is when you retire, you move on to another church. And it's not always a good thing to have the former pastor around in the church. Um, the new pastor needs to be able to have his own uh, ministry and not have kind of the, the images of the past around. But Pastor Matt was so gracious and said, you are welcome to stay at Prairie Hill, and uh, I so appreciate that. And uh, when he asked me to preach um, a, a few weeks back, I, I told him, I said, I didn't really think that I would ever preach at Prairie Hill again, and uh, certainly not this soon after having retired. So I'm very gracious, uh, grateful for his graciousness, and uh, we are, we're probably different people. We have different styles of preaching, but our goal is the same. Uh, to transform lives through the preaching of God's Word. So uh, with that in mind, I want to tell you that uh, this morning we're going to be looking at a Psalm of David. It's always hard to know when you're coming in for a one-shot thing what to preach on, but um, this is a classic Psalm of confession of sin and repentance. And I share it because I feel like in the Christian community these days, those are themes that don't always get emphasized anymore. They're not that popular, and, and uh, we don't always take repentance and confession seriously. We may realize that we've sinned and done something wrong, and, and uh, when that comes to our mind, we may just kind of say, oh, guess I shouldn't have done that. And sometimes that's as far as it goes, and there's no real thought to putting that behind us and repenting of it. And if there's a thought of confession, sometimes it's done very, in a very rote and routine manner. And David certainly did nothing in a rote manner, certainly nothing routine. His heart was very sincere, and I think we can learn some things from him as we uh, look at this particular psalm. And with that in mind, would you uh, look with me at Psalm 51 and uh, follow along as I read it, and uh, let's stand together as we do that. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, 
According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions, wash away all my iniquity, and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors your way so that sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God. You are my God and my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous, in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your words on this day. Thank you that you've given them to us and we can learn from them. And I pray that we might learn in the moments ahead. Just teach us and instruct us in this time. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Well, if we look at this psalm, the Hebrew superscript that's at the top tells us that this was a psalm that was written by David following his affair with Bathsheba. And um, the story of that is found in in Second uh, Samuel 11 to 12, and we don't have time to look at all that passage. I think most of us are probably pretty familiar with that. But just for the sake of those who are not, I want to very briefly just uh, give it uh, in kind of outline form. It begins in verse 1 by saying, In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. The author sets the stage for David's fall by reminding us that kings are supposed to go out for battle in the spring. But then we find these words, but David remained in Jerusalem. David, who had been known for his faith-filled battles, even the slaying of, of Goliath, has now become lazy and derelict in his duties. And the man who once showed how to trust in God on the battlefield, is no longer there with his men as kings are supposed to be. Instead, we find that David has a a sleepless night, 
and uh, just can't sleep, and he does what maybe many of us do when we can't sleep. We go up on the roof, right? Isn't that what you do? Well, that's what David did. And if you've ever been to Jerusalem, you know that that, that uh, part of it, the city of David, the original Jerusalem, is uh, built on the slopes of Mount Zion. And at the top of that slope was where David's palace was. So when David was up on the roof, he could peer down uh, into the courtyards of the people below um, and see what was going on in these places that were probably considered private uh, to everyone else. And on this particular uh, evening, it must have been light enough with the moon or whatever, that David could see that uh, there was this woman who was bathing and David engages in a little voyeurism. He should have turned away. But instead, he not only watches her, but he inquires as to who that is. And um, it turns out she is Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah the Hittite, who is currently off fighting the battle that David should be off fighting, but he's not. Now, we know from lists elsewhere in Scripture that Uriah the Hittite was part of a group of men called the Thirty. This was David's personal cohort of fighting men who were fiercely loyal to him and great warriors, and they protected him. They were very loyal. Scripture tells uh, a couple places in Scripture about one of those exploits, and that was that at one point David was longing uh, wistfully reminiscing about the water from the well in Bethlehem and saying, oh, that I could drink from that water again. But Bethlehem at that time was controlled by the Philistines. And yet some of these 30 men decided that they would take it upon themselves to fulfill David's wish. And at great risk to themselves, they went and they retrieved water from that well in order that David might have a drink from it. That tells you how much these men were committed to David, how much they wanted to serve him, and how much they they respected him. And, and probably without their help, he would not have been king. And how does David repay this loyal servant who gave so much for him? He sleeps with his wife. And to cut to the end of the story, to keep from his sin becoming known, he writes to Joab, his general, ordering that Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, be exposed to maximum danger in battle, to the place where the fighting was the fiercest. And then the men around him were to pull back and leave him alone there in the thick of the battle to die, which happened just as David dictated. In essence, this is murder disguised as a battlefield loss. Now we read this, and we are amazed. According to Scripture, God chose David to be king because he was a man after his own heart. And David wrote songs of praise that have become part of our Bible. David danced before the Lord. David took the light, delight in praising the Lord. And we ask, how can such a man resort to such gross sin? Um, I've learned that people can rationalize just about anything. Some of you recall there was a period, oh man, 20 or 30 years ago when there were uh, quite a number of high-profile ministers or evangelists, uh, televangelists uh, in our country that uh, fell into 
moral failure and, and committed adultery. And, and um, I always wondered about that. But uh, some years later, there was a, a study done um, where they interviewed pastors who had fallen into, as we say, moral failure and wanted to know how these men who taught the Word of God and knew it so intimately could do such a thing. And basically they found that most of them had the attitude of, I'm, I've, I'm doing so much for God. I'm doing such great things for Him and accomplishing these great things. It doesn't matter if I have this little thing in my life that is not in alignment with His will. You know that's what that's called? Rationalization. And if there's one thing I learned in 42 years of ministry is that the people are capable of rationalizing just about anything. And unfortunately, that goes for Christians as well. And I've, I've, I've sat with men and, and looked at Scripture and said, look, what you're doing is sin. And, and what I get is rationalizations on how this doesn't apply to me because you don't know my situation you don't know my wife. You don't know what I'm going through. There's lots of rationalizing on why this should not apply to you. And you know what? They've managed to rationalize away sin, and that's scary. It's scary to me because I know that if others can do that, that I can rationalize away sin as well. And I need to guard the integrity of my own heart and make sure that I am not rationalizing uh, at another time, David would write in Psalm 139, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my ways, and see if there be any wicked way in me. That's a prayer we all need because of the deceptfulness of our hearts. But on this day, David is acting like the commandments prohibiting murder and adultery do not apply to him. But David was not allowed to remain complacent about his guilt the prophet Nathan confronts him, and he does it dramatically by telling David a parable about what he had done and denouncing his sinful behavior. And it's at that moment that we see David's better qualities reemerge. David at this point offers no excuses, no denials, no blaming of others for his sin, no citing of some extenuating circumstances, in 2 Samuel 12, 13, he offers one simple statement, I have sinned against the Lord. <clears throat> and that confession of sin to the prophet Nathan becomes the heart of his prayer to the Lord, recorded for us in Psalm 51. It's made even more meaningful to us because whatever your particular sin is, it's probably less than that combo sin of murder and adultery that David had. If he can find forgiveness, all of us can. And there's a number of things worth noting in this psalm. And uh, uh, the, I want to say first, um, the first thing we note is David's appeal for mercy. Verse 1 says, Have mercy, O God, have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. David is clear that the mercy he seeks 
is not based on his own worthiness. Rather, he appeals to two things. The first is God's unfailing love. Uh, the Hebrew word is hesed. It's actually a, it's a hard H. It's a ch, but I, I'm not very good at doing that. And I, we, we sort of anglicize it. It just becomes a hesed. It's one of the great words of the Old Testament. When Scripture says the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases, it's that word hesed that is translated as steadfast love. When Scripture says thy loving kindness is better than life, it's that word hesed that is behind the words loving kindness. It's a word that is often used to indicate God's covenant love for his people, a love that never ceases because it's a love not based on their actions or merit, but on God's proclaimed covenant to them. And David appeals to this unchanging, unceasing, loving kindness of God. The second thing David appeals to is God's great compassion. You know, sometimes Christians tend to think that uh, God got compassion in the New Testament times, but in the Old Testament he was this this stern and not very compassionate God. But the Old Testament presents both the justice and the compassion of God. And in this instance, God was clearly compassionate with David. Nathan says, the Lord has taken away your sin. And the next thing we see in this psalm is David's understanding of the true nature of sin. He doesn't try to sugarcoat it at all. But rather, in verse 2, he presents it in all its ugliness. And he uses three words that convey the intentionality and ugliness of what he has done. The word translated as sin here is a word that means to miss a divinely appointed goal. There's a similar Greek word in the, the New Testament, hamartia, which means to miss the mark. And that's the idea of sin at its most basic. Missing what God has set out for us to do. But David goes beyond that simple, broad meaning of sin and uses two more words. Pesha, translated in the NIV as transgression, is uh, going against something, deliberately rebelling against uh, a command. Um, You know, I have children, many of you do. I know that there are two different ways Two different things that they do that, you know, kind of parallel these words to sin. Um, if you tell your child to go clean his room, he may have good intentions and he may start, but at some point he finds this toy he's supposed to put away and instead he plays with it and he gets sidetracked and he, he never really finished the job. He missed the mark. And we understand it's, it's, it's childishness. But there are other times when we specifically give a command. We say, well, you know, don't touch that vase because it's fragile and, and it could break. Don't touch it. And uh, we walk away and a few minutes later we see him kind of edging towards that vase and uh, kind of looking around and finally testing us and, and doing this. Am I the only one whose kids did this? No? All right. That's transgression. That's rebelling against what we have told them to do. And what, what David is saying is both of these have been a part of what I have done. But he uses a la, uh, uh, the last word, 
hawon. It's translated here as iniquity. And the idea is a, a twisting. The root indicates a twisting, a twisting of moral standards. Uh, we use the word pervert in our society to indicate the most twisted and deviant moral actions, those beyond typical failings. <clears throat> and David is, in effect, saying, my actions were just that. It was no simple sin. It was twisted. It was perverted. Uh, we, uh, 25 years ago, institu- instituted a child protection policy here at Prairie Hill that's still in effect and as a part of that, we do background checks on those who work with our children. And uh, most of the time, uh, those are pretty routine. We send in um, uh, the Social Security number to the um, Minnesota Bureau of Criminal Apprehension, and they do a check and send it back. And if there's any criminal activity, uh, they let us know. And, and uh, most, you know what? Most of you turn out to be pretty good People, not a lot of criminals here, but but at one point, this is a long time ago. Our children's ministries director, who at that time was Kathleen O'Connor, came into my office, and um, she had that background check. And the particular man that was applying to work in Awana um, had a background. In fact, uh, he had been convicted of child molestation in another state, and he actually served time in prison. For it, and of course, he didn't think that was would come back, and he'd be caught. Um, he had put on his application that no, he'd never been convicted of any crimes. And um, I had lunch with him. Actually, I had lunch with him a, a couple of times because I wanted to talk to him about it. Obviously, we didn't let him serve, and and um, he actually left the church right away. So don't don't be looking around and saying, is it, uh, is it that person next to me? You know, they, they look kind of suspicious. He's long gone. But uh, as I, I, I talked to him about this, and I, you know, at that point, you know, he admitted, well, I didn't think that, you know, that would catch up to me because that was in another state. And um, I said, well, tell me about it. And, you know, he, he tried to explain, and he says, well, you know, it was, it was kind of like... Uh, like more like love, like uh, parental love. You know, I just screwed too close uh, to this child, and and I had to stop him and say, you know what? Um, parental love doesn't involve touching someone in that way. It doesn't involve molesting a child. And when you say this was love. You're twisting that whole concept of love. You're perverting what real love is. It's a perversion of what it's supposed to be. And David is saying, in effect, my actions were perverted. They're twisted. He doesn't sugarcoat what he did, does he? There's no soft peddling of sin here. David says in verse 3, I know my transgressions, my sin is ever before me. There's no question in David's mind that he has grossly rebelled against God and he's utterly guilty. And then David gets at the vertical nature of sin. And he goes on in verse 4 and he says this, Against you, you only, 
Have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight? Now, David's words surprise us. He's only sinned against God. What about his sin against Uriah and his wife? And he took Uriah's wife and he set up his death. Uh, and yet he says, I only sinned against you, Lord. Well, you and I tend to see the social context of sin sometimes more than the divine context. And certainly we can sin against another on a human level. And the Bible talks about that. It's why God's laws spelled out restitution for those who have been wronged. But we miss the point. In confronting David, Nathan told a parable about a poor man with one lamb that he loved who had it taken away from him and slain by a rich man. It was about a parable about David, a king, who took the wife of a poor soldier serving him. And God is seen in scriptures as, as uh, the God of the poor and the defenseless. He is the God of the poor man with one solitary lamb. He is the God of Uriah, from whom David, a king with multiple wives, stole the one love of Uriah's life. And in wronging Uriah and Bathsheba, David has wronged the one who declares himself to be their God and defender. The prophet Nathan understood that. In 2 Samuel 12, the Lord speaks to David through Nathan, and he says this, Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You despised me. And then Nathan says in verse 14, By this deed you have utterly scorned the Lord. To sin against the hum a human is ultimately to sin against the Lord as well. I was in a parking lot some time back, returning to my car. And I found that next to my car there was this really huge uh, SUV that had carelessly parked over the line and was very close to my car. And I was faced with how to get in there, I could get in the other side and climb over the console. That probably would have worked when I was in my 20s. <laughs> Not so good right now. Or I could try to open the door and, you know, left a, you know, an opening about that wide to squeeze through. And I, I chose the ladder. It was hard to get in. It would have been hard for me 20 pounds ago. And it was even harder now. And I'm not one who normally leaves notes on windshields. But this driver had been so inconsiderate that I was anxious to give him a piece of my mind. And uh, as I was, uh, got paper out of the glove compartment and a pen, and as I was composing my thoughts and thinking of a few choice sentences to use, it occurred to me that I was writing not with the intent to correct, but to tear down and vent my own anger at this person. And in college, I had memorized the book of James, and those verses in that book come back to haunt me so often, and they did at this point. And what God brought to mind was James 3, 9, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, 
And with it, we curse men who have been made in his likeness. And then James says, my brothers, this should not be. When we blast away at someone made in God's image, it's like blasting God himself. I drove away from that SUV. Didn't leave a note. You know, Jesus said, what you do to the least of these, my brothers, you do to me. When we sin against others, we sin against the God who made people in his own image. David knew that the sin he directed at Uriah and Bathsheba was ultimately directed at their, at their maker. And without denying the victims heard in this, he's able to see that sin against others also carries this vertical dimension. It's sinning against God as well. And he declares uh, this to, to his God. Do you realize it is God you are ultimately striking against when you do something to someone else? What we do to others, we do to the God who made them in his image. The fourth thing we see in David's words is an understanding of his true nature. In verse 5 he says, Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Not only does David recognize this perverse nature of his sin and, and the fact that it is directed at God, but he acknowledges that this corruption is at the very center of his nature. Now he's not excusing himself saying this, but rather deploring the current or the corrupt person that he is. And understand that David is not in a position to say, well, Lord, you know, I, this was out of my character. I don't do this kind of thing very often. It was totally out of character for me. No, David says, uh, this is how I am. I'm corrupt. Uh, I'm prone to sin. I have been all my life. But David knows that what he is stands in contrast to what God wants him to be. And at this point, David seeks a changed life. And he lays out what God wants in verse 6. He says, surely you desire truth in the inner parts. And that's a far cry from one who is depraved to the core and by his own estimation has been so since birth. So what is necessary? Not just forgiveness for this one offense, but a totally changed life. Verse 7 says, Cleanse me with hyssop, and I will be clean. Wash me, and I will be whiter than snow. David says, wash me. You know, there's two words for washing in Hebrew. One means to rinse off, to rinse with water. That's not the word that's used here. It's the other word, and this particular Hebrew word is, is much more vigorous than our translation might suggest. It includes pounding and, and, and stamping and vigorously rubbing in order to loosen and remove dirt. This isn't just a, a rinsing. What David is saying is, pummel me to make me clean. Pound the dirt out of me. Put me through the ringer. Are you that serious about your sin? Would you say that to God? God, do whatever it takes. 
to make my life one that is holy. And then in verse 10, we see what this is all meant to bring about. He says, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. We must remember that in Hebrew thought, the heart was where plans originated. It's not just just that he's um, saying he's looking for a, a good feeling in his heart. David is looking for a will that is inclined towards God. And this takes the prayer far farther than a simple prayer for forgiveness. David is asking for a total reorientation of the way he thinks and operates. I was listening to our local sports radio station uh, sometime back, and that can be a total waste of time sometime, can it? Admit it, men. Um, sometimes there's good sports on there, but... Boy, there's a lot of times when there's a lot of time to fill without any interesting sports, and they get into other subjects. And uh, on this particular day, they happen to be talking about uh, a news report that said that uh, younger Catholics were apparently no longer going to confession, to go confess their sins to the priest. It's something younger generations were just no longer doing. And they kind of started talking about that and uh, callers started calling in who were Catholic and explaining why they didn't uh, confess the priest. Uh, you know, some said, well, it's just, you know, it's a time issue or, um, you know, they offered one thing or another and others suggested they should somehow make it easier or more convenient. And one suggestion was an on- online confession system where in the convenience and privacy of your home, you could type your confession in to be read by the priest. And the sidekick of the the radio host uh, chimed in at that point and said, that'd be great because you could have that confession webpage open in one window of your computer while in another window you were visiting some sleazy website. And you could be lusting and then confess and then get back to lusting and, and confess and... You know, I know he was trying to be funny. But when he said that, I thought, you know, for some people, that's a picture of their relationship with God. Confessing sin, maybe half-heartedly, but with no real intention to change. And they go back to the same thing immediately. That's not what David wanted. He asked for a new clean heart. He asked for a steadfast spirit, not a spirit prone to wander. He wants forgiveness for sin, but he also wants to change his life from those patterns of sin. And following this change of ways, Following this forgiveness and this washing and pummeling, David says the result will be that David will respond in praise to God. And we see that in verses 14 and 15. And I'm not going to talk a lot about praise this morning. You've heard me talk about that uh, uh, quite a bit in the past. I think it's vitally important to live our lives in praise to God, declaring God's greatness in whatever we do, 
And David says he's going to do that. It's interesting to me that uh, getting back to that Hebrew superscription, this psalm was written for the director of music. This was something that was going to be sung in church. I, I find that so interesting. Through the years I've written an occasional song here or there. Um, John and Lisa have sung them. Uh, some others have. I don't sing. Um, well, I, I fake it in choirs sometimes, but I don't sing. But I, I, I've, I've written an occasional song, but I've never written about sin in my life. I've never written about being twisted. I've never expressed that. But David did. Why? Because even this failing could be used to praise God for his loving kindness, his hesed, his unfailing love, his great compassion. And he uses even this failing and his own turning for that in order to praise God. Getting these things straight, confessing, repenting, ultimately should lead to praise. But note the order here because it's important. First comes the confession, the repentance, the seeking of a changed life from God. And then comes the praise. David concludes this song by talking about sacrifice. But in doing so, he's really warning against the attempt to use sacrifice instead of a genuine contrition and repentance. In verse 16 and 17, he says, You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Now, it's obvious that David is not against all sacrifice. David wanted to build a temple there in Jerusalem where people could bring their sacrifices. That would ultimately fall to his son Solomon to do. But he wasn't against it. And he closes the psalm by looking ahead to a day when Jerusalem will be built up and there will be what he calls righteous sacrifices, burnt offerings and bowls offered in a righteous way. What David is against is what God is against. Sacrifices that are not accompanied by a contrite heart. God values the condition of the heart above religious ritual that may, may have the right motions but is very empty because the heart is not right. And that's true of everything we do, including the praises that David is talking about. Years ago now, I was at a Promise Keepers event at, at uh, um, a big stadium. Well, the old... Uh, Metrodome. And as I remember as we were worshiping there, that there was uh, a couple of rows ahead of me, a man who was very into the worship. He was 
dancing and both arms were thrust into the air and his face was pointed towards heaven and he was was swaying and and um, <clears throat> and I re- he was loudly singing and proclaiming the praises of God and I remember him for two reasons the first is that his praise was very different from what I saw in my free church congregation um, with all its frozen Scandinavians who would hate to be too expressive. God forbid that anyone should ever accuse us of being overly emotional in worship. Um, that's, that's right there next to the unpardonable sin, isn't it? It was very different, very expressive. But I also remember that man because that day the speaker spoke about sexual sin and he called people to examine themselves and repent of it. And he gave an altar call for people to come forward and, and kneel in repentance of that sin that, that they had never yielded to God. And this man left his seat and a few moments later I saw him kneeling before the stage in repentance of his sexual sin. And I thought at the time, I don't know this man's heart. But I hope that that message had brought a new awareness of sin in his heart. And not that he was living a double life. Worshiping exuberantly while harboring sin inside that he had never dealt with. I think that's what David is getting at when he talks about God not desiring sacrifice. What God doesn't want is hypocrisy. Going through religious actions when what he wants is contrition and repentance. You know, the book of Hebrews talks about praise as a sacrifice. It is. But remember, sacrifice of any kind must never be hollow and empty. As with David, praise follows getting our hearts right. Praise should never be hypocritical. And how is your heart today, my friend? Is it right with the Lord? Or have you wandered into sin that you just sort of maybe acknowledge, but, well, it's not really that bad? If so, I would ask you to come to the Lord in that same spirit of contrition that David had. Call upon the Lord who is compassionate and loving for forgiveness, but also call upon him to change your heart to what he wants it to be. And then we can praise him with a pure heart. Would you pray with me?
Heavenly Father, thank you for your loving kindness, your covenant love, your goodness, your compassion, your mercy. Without that, we would not be here worshiping you on this day, for we would be dead in our sins. Thank you, Lord, that you not only want to forgive us, but that you want our lives to be yielded to you and be a reflection of your holiness and your righteousness. Oh, Lord, do what is necessary in our lives. And today, we come before you and we want to be serious about change. Thank you for loving us as we are. But thank you for not wanting to leave us as we have been. Thank you for your love. Thank you for the change that is possible in our lives as we yield to your spirit, as we confess, as we repent. And that repentance is a turning, a change in the direction that we have been going. That's what we want, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.